word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. By the way, aren't you tired of Christians who always say, I don't have anything? Verse number two, And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. By the way, I wrote here after that verse in my Bible, that's the fruit of faith. He counted it to him for righteousness. What a good legacy to live, to leave behind. You believed the Lord. Verse number 7, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out. That's God's intentions all the time. He always brings us out. He didn't save us to leave us where he found us. Once you're saved, he doesn't want you to stay spiritually where you are. He always is trying to take us someplace. He brings us out. Of her of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And here's God's response. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece, one against another. But the birds divided he not. So God responds to Abram when Abram says, God, how do I know that you're going to honor your word? By the way, God always honors his word. But he said, how do I know this? He said, it's physically impossible. And God said, here's what I want you to do. Very specifically, God speaks to Abram. Can I say, God always speaks specifically. You don't have to guess or wonder or just take a stab in the dark at what it is God desires. God always speaks specifically. Often the time, the problem is that we don't respond when God speaks to us. And he said, I want you to take these specific things. He says, an heifer, three years old. He said, a ram, a she-goat, turtle doves, a young pigeon. And the Bible said he took them, divided them in the midst. Now, the Bible does not specifically say it, but just from context, we can understand what do you think it is Abraham laid these items on? What would he take these things and place them upon? An altar. Very good class, an altar. Abraham has just obeyed God. And he's laid some things on an altar. Have you ever used an altar before? Have you ever made a decision at an altar? If you have, raise your hand. All right. I I mean, a life-changing decision, a big decision at an altar. You ever notice we'll make a decision at an altar, and we meant it in the height of a meeting, in the spirit of revival, God's moving, we went to that altar, good intentions, made that decision. And you ever notice we find ourselves a few months later, or a year later, coming back and having to remake that decision again. And something happened there where we really meant it. We laid whatever it is on that altar, but it seems like it didn't stick. Verse number 11 is what draws my, drew my attention today. And it says, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, now watch this, Abram drove them away. Abraham had offered God what God asked Abraham to offer him. But no sooner had he laid that sacrifice on the altar, an adversary, an enemy came and tried to rob off of the altar what Abram had given God. Now, if Abram would have been like the average Christian in our generation, he probably would have sat back, folded his arms and said, that stinks. I guess I'll have to find another cow, another goat, another ram. But he didn't. He got proactive. And the Bible says that he rose up and began to drive the fowls away actively chasing those enemies, those adversaries off of that altar. 
for a little while this morning, I want to try to challenge your heart. I might tell a few personal stories as well, but I want to speak on this subject. You better guard what you've given God on your altars. You better guard it. Because, listen, it's not always going to be in the height of a meeting. It's not always going to be a spiritual high or a mountain. Sometimes you're going to have to take a proactive stand and fight for whatever it is you've given God on the altars of your life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for power to preach, please. I pray for liberty. I pray you'd stir us, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think about Christianity, I think about several words. For example, when I think Christianity, of course, I think about the word or the name Christ. Christianity is Christ. We don't come to rally around a man or rally even around a movement, but we rally around, we'll say, the master. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about the word Bible. That's a good word, isn't it? Aren't you glad that we don't go to church to hear the thoughts of man or the philosophy of man, but we hear from the Word of God? I wouldn't get up early on a Sunday morning to hear what you wrote in your journal, but I'd get up to go hear what God has to say, and I thank God for the Bible. I think about that word prayer. I'm glad I've got a direct line and access to God and I can call Jesus anytime in prayer. I think about the word Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Thank God what we do is not in our might or by our strength or our ability or in our capacity, but thank God we've got the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit of God and we can have that on our Christian life. But I also think about this word altar. And when I think about the word altar, I think about a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham was a man of family. He was a man of faith. He was a man who followed God. But he was also a man who frequently used an old-fashioned altar. Now, I'm going to say this over and over again, but it's on purpose. An altar is a big deal to God. Let me say it again. An altar is a big deal to God. An altar is not something to use flippantly or casually or popping gum and skipping down the aisle just because everybody else used it. But an altar is a very big deal to God. The very first mention of altar in your Bible is in Genesis chapter number 8. Noah gets off the ark, and we heard it mentioned this week, he builds an altar and he worships God there. The first time Abram uses an altar is in Genesis chapter 12. The word altar is found 487 times or more in the King James Bible. But regardless of where you find it, it's always the same. An altar is a place where man and God did business. That's where man and God would intersect. That's where man would communicate with God. It's a place of devotion, a place of sacrifice. An altar is a big deal to God. We find altars used in Genesis We find altars mentioned in the book of Revelation. All throughout the Bible, there's an emphasis placed on man meeting with God at an altar. I was studying and I just gave you my book. I want that book back someday. But anyway, I was studying this morning on the tabernacle and the first piece of furniture as you go on the eastern side of that tabernacle was that altar. And it's the biggest piece of furniture as well. And it signifies that's the starting point when you want a relationship with God. It all begins at an altar. I thank God for an altar. I found out Noah used an altar. Abram used an altar. David used an altar. Samuel used an altar. Gideon used an altar. Elijah used an altar. Joshua used an altar. Uh, Ezekiel used an altar. Isaiah used an altar. In heaven, there's an altar. So it tells me an altar is an important place. I thank God for those places. Have you ever had an altar in your life? You ever had a place where you and God did business? I mean, a place where you offered God what God asked you to give to Him. You ever used an altar before? 
I thank God for the altars in my life. I think about this. I thank God for the altar of my salvation. Do you remember the place where you knelt? Maybe not even physically, but you bowed your heart and in faith you accepted Christ as your Savior. Remember the day you got born again? Right where I'm from, born. You remember when you got born again? When you got saved? Man, I remember when I got saved. I didn't get saved till I was 21 years old. How many of you heard my testimony before? Any of you? All right, I'll tell it today. I didn't get saved till I was 21 years old. You say, how old are you now? That's none of your business. But anyway, uh, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were saved, and we went to church. It was more of a liberal church, so I grew up religious but lost. The kind of church I went to was sort of the kind that we preach against now. And no, no invitations, really, no stressing the need for salvation. The preacher came by our house when I was in, I think, sixth grade and said, now it's time for you all to join the church. You need to get baptized. And that was his presentation of his gospel to us. So I got baptized but had no idea why, and I wasn't born again. I was lost. I was a junior in college, getting ready to go to my senior year of college, and I was working at a summer camp. My job at that summer camp was just to be a groundskeeper, really. I just weed-eated and ran chainsaws and drove around in a gator, and I loved it. My work uniform was blue jeans with no, I mean, with the holes in the knees and a sleeveless T-shirt and a bas- bat- backward baseball cap, a dip cup, never mind. But anyway, I mean, that's just how it was. I was 21 years old, lost, you know, redneck, and that was my job. I worked from sundown to sunup. I mean, plenty of Old Spice kept them in business, you know. But anyway, one day on a Friday, I'd been working all day long, and there was a group that had come out for camp. And uh, I went to the dining hall to get a drink of water. And that dining hall was divided by double doors like the ones in the back of the chapel. And uh, there were windows in them just like that. And I was getting a drink of water, and I looked through the windows in those double doors, and I saw a lady leading kids in a, one of those corny camp songs they make us sing. Now, that song has come back to haunt us since, because now my son is obsessed with the song, Baby Shark. But anyway, uh, I looked through, I don't know if that's ever been said in chapel or not, but I looked through those windows and I saw this young lady and I drank my water and watched her and she got done leading those kids in that song, looked back through the window and she saw me. And I could just tell that when she looked at me, Brother Moyer, she liked what she saw. And uh, she's not here today, so I'm going to preach it the way I want to. But anyway... I went through those double doors and I introduced myself to her and I said, my name is Justin. She said, my name is Desiree. I said, I've never met anybody from France before. Uh, But anyway, she said, my name is Desiree. And I said, would you marry me? And No, I didn't really, but I wanted to. I said, hey, I'd like to take you on a date. And she looked at me kind of cross-eyed and she said, I can't do that. And I said, why? I said, I'm only 21. How old are you? She said, well, I'm 18, just graduated high school. I said, well, that's legal. I said, I'd like to take you on a date. She said, no, no, no. She said, I can't go on a date with you. And I said, why? She said, because my dad's an independent, fundamental, premillennial, temperamental, King James only, right-wing, conservative, and mad about it, Baptist. That's just what he is. And she said, we don't date, but you can go to church with us if you like. And I thought, let me pray about that. Now, my, now she's my wife, but she worked at a place called Bob Evans. Who's heard of Bob Evans before? All right, Bob Evans. Bob Evans was in Elkview, West Virginia, about 45 miles away from where I lived in Spencer, West Virginia. My wife grew up in Looneyville, West Virginia. But anyway, seriously, one day I got my friend and thought, let's just drive over there and let's see if she's waitressing today and I'm going to try to get her phone number. Now, the smart thing to do would be call ahead to the restaurant and ask if she's working because it's a long trip, but we didn't, we didn't do that. We drove all the way there. The hostess set us down, and then our, 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 wait, our waitress came. She looked like she might have been in the WWE at one point. I don't know. But she came walking over there, just a stereotypical mountain mama, you know, snuff coming out both sides of her face. And she comes walking over there, and I don't know if it was 
sideburns growing up or nose hairs growing I don't know what it was. Uh, but she came over there and said, what will it be, boys? And uh, I said, is Desiree working? She said, no. And I said, if I leave you my phone number, would you have her call me? And she kind of winked. Sure. <laughs> she did not pass my number. But she called me herself two or three times. I really missed out. But anyway... A couple of weeks passed and I was in Walmart. Where I grew up, the only thing there was to do was either to go to Walmart or sit in the parking lot and rev our trucks and see who had the tallest tires on your truck. So I was in Walmart this day and we were walking around the aisles in Walmart and I came around this aisle and ran right into this woman who's now my mother-in-law. Now I've not gotten within biting distance of her since that day, but we were close that day. And uh, anyway... Desiree introduced me to her mother-in-law. She said, that's that boy you're talking about. And I said, oh, that's good. She's been talking about me. And my mother-in-law said, why don't you come to church this Sunday and you can stay at our house and have lunch after the service? I thought, she's pretty good looking. I'll suffer through church for her. I went to church that day. I had my mom's little uh, burgundy-colored Bible, about half the size of this Bible here, and and I was the cutest boy at church that day. I walked up to church that day wearing a pair of khaki cargo shorts, a pink American Eagle T-shirt, flip-flops, and had a puka shell necklace around my neck and a bracelet on my wrist. Now, if you tell anybody I said that, I'll tell them you're a liar and we've never met before at all. But that's what I wore. I didn't have any sense. I dressed like some of y'all dress now in the summer. But anyway... I walked up to the back door. I walked up to the back door of the church, and there were two men in suits out there in the back door. And I thought, good night, they have bouncers at this place. I walked up to, I've never been in church like this. I walked up to the back door, and one fellow looked at me and said, hey, brother. And I thought, man, we're not related. I don't know you. I've never seen you before. And he escorted me in. He said, who are you here for? And I named her name, and he said, let me escort you up to their assigned family pew, you know, Independent Baptist Church. So I walked into that church, and I sat down there with her 500 brothers and sisters. I'm talking denim jumpers for days on that pew and we sat there they started the service and cranked up the piano and started singing songs that i'd never heard in church i'd heard them on andy griffith and they started singing leaning on the everlasting arms and victory in jesus and they said i heard and somebody said amen i was like help you know i thought somebody got hurt i had never heard anybody shout in church i mean i was used to going to church like you all do i mean i never heard anybody shout before in my life oh i'm feeling really ornery today The preacher got in the pulpit, and he said, bless God. But he didn't say it like that. I mean, he screamed. He said, bless God. Get out your 1611 King James Bible. And I thought, what is that? (laughs) Seriously, I thought he meant the size of it. Every preacher I ever saw like that had those big Bibles you could really hurt somebody with. And and I thought, man. So I began to measure my Bible in the pew. And this is a true story. (laughs) Just like that one. Now, don't interrupt me, preacher. But anyway, I, I took my finger... I took my finger and began to measure my Bible. This is true. You can ask my wife. I measured up the spine eight inches. I measured across the bottom seven inches. I was so embarrassed. I thought I was trying to impress this girl. And I've got this dinky little eight by seven Bible. And everybody else has a 16 by 11 Bible. I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry I brought this Bible. She said, it's a King James Bible, right? And I said, it is, but it's an eight by seven. And she looked at me so sweet. And I've heard this many times since, but this was the first. She said, shut up. The preacher said, take your Bible, go to the book of 1 John. I didn't know there was a book called 1 John, and some of you haven't got the New Testament survey yet either. Uh, But anyway, so I turned to John chapter number 1. 
I began to read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word. And that's not what he was reading. I thought, that girl's pretty, but she's not that smart. This is not the same Bible. And then he took off preaching. Now, when I say preaching, I'm talking bold letters. I'm talking about... In neon lines, pa-reaching. I'm talking about like an old lawnmower, loud, wide open, and smoking. He took off a hundred miles a minute like a horse out of the gate at the Kentucky Derby. He looked like he was mad at everybody. I mean, he started preaching as he was preaching. Man, spit was flying, and we were getting soaked with that holy saliva from the man of God on the front five pews. I mean, just sitting there, my eyes were big around his paper, just like that, big around his paper place. I was watching him thinking this dude's off his medication. He's going to hurt us. He might even kill us. They're going to have us drink Kool-Aid, beam us up to a mothership. I thought I'm going to be kissing a copperhead, hugging a rattlesnake, dancing around with a tambourine. I thought, I think I saw this thing on 2020. I should have known this was a cult when I heard them speak in tongues. They've said cool us like 20 times. I was watching him preach, and I thought, man, he had a vein like an anaconda going down between his eyes. He had a vein like a PVC pipe running from earlobe to shoulder blade. I thought, man, this dude, I'll never see my mother again. I'll never see my daddy. This girl's pretty, but I don't want to die for her. I don't even know her last name. I thought, I'm going to die in this church. And he preached. And by the way, you got to do that sometime, fellas. He's like a human thermometer, red line, climbing higher and higher as he preached. He wound her down. I mean, this guy was like 80 years old wearing cowboy boots when he preached. And I thought, good night. I didn't know we could do that. I mean, the Spirit of God was so on him, he could take that leg 80 years like that. And I thought, man, this place is crazy. He wound her down and gave an invitation. and said, but God came in his love toward Justin that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or at least that's exactly how it sounded. And for the first time in my life, I was convicted of my sin. I should have walked down and got saved in church, but I'll be honest with you, I was more worried about what she thought than what God knew. Prideful. After the service, my father-in-law stopped me after, after lunch, and he said, hey, I want you to take something with you to college. I was in a secular school senior year, and he gave me this pamphlet. This is the exact pamphlet. He said, I want you to take this back to college with you and read it. And I said, all right. I began to read this, and I had that little Bible there. And I got to a line in this book, and I have it underlined in red. And it, Dr. Rice said, the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And that convicted my heart for some reason that I didn't care about anybody else. I could have cared less if you went to hell or not. And God began to break my heart and showed me again I was lost. And there in my college apartment, surrounded by all the posters you'd think a lost college apartment would have on the walls, Bad stuff in the fridge, filth on the television. I was in my back bedroom by myself with my mom's Bible, and I put my head in the carpet and cried out to God to save me, and he did. Exit 132, apartment 302B, Fairmont, West Virginia. I was 21 years old. I'll preach up and down that area, or used to anyway, and would drive past that, and whenever somebody would be riding with me, I'd say, there it is. That's my altar. That's where I got saved. Right there. Do you remember that altar? I remember when I surrendered my life to God. Not to be in a, a, a preacher, but just said, God, I want you to use my life. I was student teaching my last year, last semester of college, and I was sitting in my car. I'd always go, I'd always go to my car and eat lunch by myself. I was so stirred up about being a Christian. I hadn't been around church members long enough to know you're not supposed to be stirred up about it. So I still enjoyed it. So I'd go to my car and I'd listen to preaching and eat my tuna and Roman noodles, whatever those noodles are called. You know, that's just what I had. SpaghettiOs, if it was a good day. And I remember I was listening to a message on Isaiah, here my sin, me and God broke my heart. And snow was falling and hitting the roof of that uh, uh, Ford F Focus. Y'all heard me tell about that Ford Focus. But anyway, it's hitting the roof of my car. 
I remember at altar, that steering wheel, just praying and saying, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do, but I know I want you to use me. I never thought I'd end up here or anywhere else. I just wanted God to use my life and surrendered. I remember the church on a Sunday morning in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was a school, Christian school teacher. And God had been dealing with my heart about preaching. I'd been asking preachers, how do you get into that preaching anyway? How do you get into it? And they said, you, you just need, you'll know. And I went to church on a Sunday morning, and I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing a pair of khaki pants and a purple button-up shirt and an ugly old tie. It looked like you painted with watercolors. You know, that's just what was in style. But anyway, that's what I was wearing at church. And the preacher preached on Elijah and Elisha, and he took off his jacket, and he threw it on the ground. And he said, I wonder if any of you young men would pick up the mantle for old-time religion and pick up the mantle for the King James Bible and pick up the mantle for soul. And he just ran the list. And, man, God began to convict my heart. And I thought, some of these fellows ought to pick up that mantle. I've only been saved a year. I haven't even read through my whole Bible yet. But without a doubt, God reached out and grabbed a hold of my heart. And I was so sure that God wanted me to preach however I could. And I remember that altar that morning, surrendering. I remember the altar and my wife and I had to consecrate our life to God. I quit my job. I was so full of zeal and not much knowledge. Somebody said that's like having seeds in a bottle, not knowing how to get the cap off of it. But anyway, I was just full of zeal. By the way, I'd much rather have to calm you down than try to pep you up. But I went to school one day, and I, was just so, I knew God wanted me to preach. And there was a clock just like that on the back wall, and I got so convicted watching the second hand go around that clock thing, and I'm wasting my life. And I wasn't. That's a good job. But people were dying, to, going to hell every time. That second hand ticked on that clock face. And I took my little black Schofield Bible my grandpa had bought me for my 21st birthday after I got saved. I had took that to my history class that day and said, Don't get out your world history book. I said, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 19. And I preached on Lot and how the judgment of God was coming and Lot lingered. And I preached on hell eight times that day, every class period I had in that little Christian school. Had nine students get saved and the principal heard about it, brought me to his office, said, what would you do today? And I said, preached on hell all day long. I said, we had nine people saved. And he said, well, yeah, but you're supposed to teach too. And I said, listen, I'm quitting. And that's not very wise and I wouldn't do it again. And I didn't even ask my wife like he mentioned earlier. And I'll tell you, you probably should consult. But I just knew that God wanted me to preach. And I remember I was preaching in juvenile detention centers and things like that, but I quit my job. And I went home and told my wife, and I said, Desiree, I said, I quit. And she wasn't all that excited about that. We had a new house and new cars, a new wife, been married about three months. And she said, what are we going to do? And I said, God's going to put food on our table. God's going to put shoes on our feet. And that sounds real spiritual until you try it out. We didn't have any money. And by the way, I, I, was, I said, people are going to call me for meetings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into evangelism. Nobody called me for anything. I'm not proud of it. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't have a dad who was a preacher. Nobody knew who I was. I just sat there in an empty little dilapidated trailer. You know, no nothing. I got a letter in the mail from my public school back in West Virginia from the superintendent of the schools. And she asked, sent me a contract with a personal letter asking me if I'd sign that. And she had a job waiting on me back home to coach football, teach history. My wife could be a secretary at the school. And together we would have made uh, quite a bit of money. I mean, it was a lot of money when you're making zero. I think it was like $40,000 a year. In West Virginia, that's like making $400,000 a year here. So, I mean, that's good money. But anyway, I remember, man, that was so tempting. And we're sitting at that little first-time homebuyer's kitchen table, only big enough for two people. And I remember my wife and I sitting there and didn't have anything. And I told her, I said, I'm going to take that job. I remember her looking at me and crying and said, no, you said God called you to preach. And she put her hand on my hand and we put our hands on that letter and pushed it off the table. 
and decided we'd go with God. And I never thought I'd preach where I've preached or travel where I've traveled or be in a place like this. It all came from an altar. We said, we're just going to trust God. I remember hearing Curtis Hudson preach about this book, Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians. And I don't know what you do in your spare time, but I'll tell you what I did when I was your age. I bought books and listened to preaching because that's what I wanted to be. And I heard him on an old, old CD or tape. It might have been from the sort of preaching. And he mentioned that book. And I thought, I'm going to find that book. And it's impossible almost to find that book. But I got on eBay and I found this book. And I remember getting in the basement of our little house. We bought a house for $60,000 in West Virginia. And we paid more than it was worth. And I remember being in the basement. And every time it rained, it would flood. And I remember being in the basement, there was mold everywhere in that basement. And I had this book out. I didn't have any meetings. My wife was working a full-time job for the state of West Virginia as a secretary for the ag department just so we could pay our bills. And I remember I was reading this down there and just asking God to fill me with the Spirit and fill me with the Spirit. And I remember, I mean, I don't know how I can explain it, but I remember God changed my preaching there for a short You can just tell whenever God comes on you. And I remember that altar, and I remember that place. And when we preach in that area, we'll drive down that little dead-end road by that junky little house and say, man, I remember what God did for us in that place. Can I say an altar is a big deal to God? You ever used an altar before? God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to give me something specific. And Abraham obeyed, and I thank God for that. By the way, the best way to do church is when God speaks, you listen and obey. Go home saying, I'm glad I did. Don't go home saying, I wish I would have. But he took exactly what God asked him to take, and he laid it upon, well, let me say this more recently. I remember, I remember some other altars in my life, and I'll mention this, and then I'll get to the application. I remember the altar whenever we were in evangelism for many years, and, man, I didn't need to get out of it. had meetings and things like that booked up for three or four years out, and God began to change our heart about going into a, the pastor, and people thought I was nuts. I got so many negative calls and still get negative calls. And I just knew what God was doing. And I remember my wife and I getting in our house in like a big house in Kentucky. Making more money than I'll probably ever make again, honestly. And she said, if that's what you think God wants you to do, that church of 20 people called us. To... I was preaching to hundreds of people. And a church of 28 people called me to be their pastor. I had bigger churches than that calling me and for some reason didn't feel led to go. And then that little church in the middle of nowhere in a town I didn't want to live in called me. And I knew without a doubt that's where God wanted me to go. And I remember we went up there and we moved into a junky old parsonage. Needed work done to it. They didn't like my preaching at all. They liked it when they heard me like once in a while at conferences. They didn't like it every day. But we were there, man. We... People were coming. The church had 28 people. We were there for about uh, six weeks. And then Easter hit and we had 143 on Easter Sunday. And God was just blessing it. And then I came out here and he started bucking me. I'm just kidding. But Pastor Treber and I have been in contact for a while. Almost two years, a year and a half from the last youth conference to this one. About coming here. And I'll be honest with you. This is the last place I thought I'd ever live. Or want to. And I remember coming out here, and, and, and Mrs. Treeper's more ferocious about it than Pastor Treeper is. But, but I remember them saying, you need to come out here. You got to pray about coming out here. And I thought, that's hilarious, you know. I was preaching a youth camp in South Georgia the last week of June after you, actually the second week of the youth conference week. And I, the preacher said, Brother Cooper, I, it's, it's, it's too on for you to preach, but would you testify for a minute? And I said, I'll try to say something. And I got up there, and God just started putting my heart about our life and how it's just 
from that front pew to that altar when I surrendered to preach, it was one step. That's all it took. It was, it was one step between me and the will of God. One step. And I began to preach to those young people and said, would you be willing just to take one step? I said, well, Brother Cooper, how'd you get from West Virginia, North Carolina? I took a step. How'd you get from North Carolina back to West Virginia? I took a step. How'd you get from there to Kentucky and then wherever? Just took a step. And while I was preaching that, God just destroyed me. I called you that night. And I had to quit and gave the service back to the pastor and laid on that platform and wept in front of all those kids because I just knew what God was doing and I didn't want him to do it, to be honest with you. And I called my wife and she knew what it was before I even got to tell her. She said, I'm ready to go. I thank God for those altars. I'd rather be in the will of God than anywhere in the world. But can I say here in the text, this adversary came down and tried to rob, and here's my message, and I'm not going to preach it the way I wanted to because I don't feel like it. (laughs) Abram didn't just sit there and let him take it off the altar. He rose up and said, get away. He said, I gave that to God. I meant that when I gave that to God. I was serious when I gave that to God. You can't have it. And can I say, you're going to have to get proactive. Some of you have decided, I'm going to be a missionary. Can I say, that's easy to do in a chapel service. But whenever the funds aren't coming in and it's not popular and you're not getting the retweets and the likes on your posts and all those kind of things, what are you going to do then? Some of you said, I'm going to be a preacher. Hey, that's fine now, but what about when you take one of those churches of 20 people and you barely have enough money to buy groceries and things? Are you still going to? Hey, you better guard what you've given God on your altar. Hey, you said, I'm going to keep myself pure till I'm married. That's fine to do in a youth conference. A lot of folks do it, but whenever the situation comes and the opportunity is there to do wrong, hey, you better guard what you've given God on your altar. You say, I'm glad to be an independent fundamental Baptist. Well, me too, but you better guard what you've given God on your altar. It's not out of convenience. It's out of conviction. And my message to you today and my challenge is this. Hey, Listen, an altar is a big deal to God. And whatever it is you've laid on that altar, hey, you follow through with it and you be proactive about it and you defend that and you guard that and don't let the devil take it. Don't let a friend take it. Don't let culture take it. Don't let peer pressure take it. Say, I know what I gave God on that altar. That's God's and you stay away from it. I meant what I did and did what I meant and you can't have it. That's God's. Get away. And guard it. Whatever it is, stick with God and guard what you've given God on your altar.